Somebody's poor departed child. I wonder whose. I can't find... I can't find Frederica. She's lost her dog. Joanna. Joanna. It's my uncle. Don't be foolish. Are you there, Joanna? Yes. These things are all fate. But it is my uncle. I know his voice. Please, you hurt, Mr. Meek. Got to... Got to tell Holden he can't fight it. It's too strong. He means we must give up the investigation. This is crazy. Carswell has the key. He's translated the old book. The answer is there. No! Oh, look! It's in the trees. It's coming! The demon! It's coming! No! That does it. warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program. Real Britannia, a very British podcast about very British movies with just a hint of professionalism. Good morning, Stephen. Morning, my friend. We've got more than just a hint of professionalism today, though, haven't we? It's going to put us to shame. We have got, I would say, <laughs> podcasting legend, but to us, he's our, our mate. It's Adam Roach, guys, best known from Secret History of Hollywood, Attaboy Clarence, and is it The Labours of Hercule? Am I saying that right, mate? Yeah, that's right. Nice one. There you go. Get your little plug for the new one. one. Adam Roach, everybody. Good morning, sir. Hello. (laughs) Oh, my God. This is such an honour to be with you. It's taken taken a time, hasn't it? I mean, (laughs) we've not been ignoring you. We've all been podcasting for near on 10 years, but this is the first time we've actually sat together (laughs) and done something on on one of my shows. (laughs) Absolute honour to have you here, sir. Absolute honour. Oh, mate. I I, I remember saying to you years ago, like, probably three or four years ago when we met up in London once and mm-hmm. we had a pint you were like oh you'll have to come on Stinking Paws or something. and I was like can I, can I please come on Real Britannia it's my favourite show and you went yeah yeah yeah, yeah of course and you then can. I didn't hear from you for years and I thought <laughs> oh, yeah I was, I was vetoing it yeah <laughs> well, I was made really to feel even more guilty because I was guesting on your show a couple of weeks ago and I thought you know what I'd better return this favour along the line somewhere so I can't get out of it so here he is um <laughs> Contractually obliged. Fine up here. Cheers, mate. That's fine. That's fine. You never know. Let me might... see you again. Steve. It's nice to feel wanted, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it's been a while, mate. So good to see you. British movies, Adam. You're probably best known to your listeners for your your love of the golden age of Hollywood and beyond. But you have a deep fondness for the for the classic British movie, don't you, mate? 
Yeah, especially like this era, the fifties. Mm-hmm. I think was quite well, especially because well, we'll get into it. I'm sure because um, Jacques Tourneur, very associated with Luton, who mm-hmm. was subject of you know House on American investigations at some point. Most of the talent in British cinema in the fifties was. Uh, creators escaping Hollywood and the blacklist to come over and keep working. And God, it was like an explosion of just talent and creativity. I love this period in British cinema. There's some great noirs, great horrors, great sort of dramas, some great comedies as well. I mean, this is the, the decade in which the Carry On series started. And Carry On Nurse, I, I maintain, is one of the greatest <laughs> British comedies ever. So. I think we agree with that, that Nurse was one of our favourites, Stephen, wasn't it? And, yeah. Yeah, uh, and we're discovering that the fifties is an untapped gold mine because you know most mm. people would you know that the the eighties we're finding is a great sort of reference point for things like film four and handmade films and that was a great sort of period of creativity. But the fifties, I think, you know, the post-war stuff was where it really all came to life, wasn't it? We we described the um, the precursors to the kitchen sink dramas. We described the social problem movies, you know, like the Blue Lamp and those police procedurals of all this sort of era. And this is great because this falls smack bang right in the middle of the emergence of the Hammer Horrors as well, guys, this particular movie, doesn't it? It does, because, I mean, you know, Hammer was just at this point transitioning because they'd done a few comedies and and some great new hours, to, to be honest. And this was the start of this, in some ways, quite... British take on horror, although the, you know, there's the American influence in there, as Adam says, with uh, the the refugees from the persecution coming, you know, in. But we've, I think we've benefited in any number of genres, and this is one of them where this sort of set a standard that influenced not just Hammer, but plenty of other, um, you know, screenwriters and directors and, and actors, to be honest. It's, this was absolutely a, a, a landmark. I think in a lot of ways, not to spoil the, the my review of this film, but <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it's, it's it's like a there's like a real uh, passing of the torch in '57 because you got Universal Horrors being remade by Hammer, like the first is it the first? It's Frankenstein, wasn't it? '57, yeah. the Hammer, the first proper Hammer horror, um, <clears throat> and then you got this, which is you know Charles Bennett wrote this. He wrote The Lady Vanishes and. Mm. All those great sort Hitchcock. of early British um, Hitchcock's sort of early British films, and you've got Jacques Tourneur, of course, you know, who did his apprenticeship with Luton, and it's like this real sort of passing of the flame. Really, you got old Hollywood meeting meeting new Hollywood, meeting British cinema, and horror just explodes all over the place. Fifty Seven's great year for it is horror, absolutely. And, and one <laughs> thing I did notice with this as well, which sort of like ties it in with the, the you know the Quater Mass and the X the Unknown and those very early Hammer horrors. Um, drunken American lead actor. <laughs> apparently, get him on the cheap. Yeah, apparently Dana Andrews, when he arrived in the UK, fell down the steps of the plane where he was so drunk, um, and everybody denied responsibility as to who hired him. So, um, <laughs> but more of this in a second. Let's play the trailer. We'll be back after this. It has been written since the beginning of time that evil, supernatural creatures exist in a world of darkness. And it is also said, man can call forth these powers of darkness, the demons of hell. (laughs) 
night is the night of the demon. And tonight is the night that Dana Andrews, as a daring scientist, defies the mysterious murderous devil cult in a desperate battle against the demons of hell. Oh, why did you drop the poker? Red hot. Which isn't, you know. Oh, my boy, you're as pale as death. There was something in here. He has been chosen. I've been chosen for what? What do you mean? Today I found all the pages of my desk calendar torn out after October the 22nd. I know why. He died on the 22nd. John, what's the matter? The same thing happened to my desk calendar after the 28th. The frightened girl. The master of witchcraft. You will die, as I said, at 10 o'clock on the 28th of this month. Your time allowed is just three days from now. Skeptical? Don't make up your mind till you see this masterpiece of macabre magic. Because, after all, evil supernatural creatures really do exist. Okay, so that's Night of the Demon, released in 1957. Directed, as we said, by Jacques Tourneur, starring Dana Andrews, Peggy Cummings, Maurice Denham. Loads of famous bit part actors that we need to talk about, because Adam and I had the conversation about those little back, those Sam Kidd type characters, which we always bring up in the uh, in the Hall of Fame. And there's a few of those dotted about this. <laughs> the synopsis. American professor John Holden arrives in London for a conference on parapsychology, only to discover that the colleague he was supposed to meet was killed in a freak accident the day before. It turns out that the deceased had been investigating a cult led by Dr. Julian Carswell. Though a sceptic, Holden is suspicious of the devil worshipping Carswell, and following a trail of mysterious manuscripts, Holden enters a world that makes him question his faith in science. That sums it up quite nicely, actually. But there's a yeah. lot more to this, isn't there? Adam, come on. I know because of the Val Luton, Jack Turner connection and and the fact that you watch it every other day by the sound of it um why why is this a great movie for you mate what makes it so special because that's got a great heritage you know it's based on an mr james story and mr james is still being adapted to this day for ghost stories for christmas that i don't think he'll ever go out of fashion because he seems to perfectly capture that sort of inbuilt horror that lives in your bones you know you're not aware of it until someone points it out it's in the land it's Mm. in the rocks it's in it's in the building. <clears throat> it's in so the trees. It's coming. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Hounds of love. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he perfectly tapped into that thing that everyone finds so fascinating, and that's folk horror. So this is, a, you know, a great 50s folk horror film about the, the world of the new, represented by Dana Andrews, meeting the world of the old, which is Carswell and his cult. And um, I don't think that will ever go out of fashion. So the appeal... Is you know bringing that ancient horror, the runes, the the curses, the magic, the black magic, into a contemporary setting. This must have been even more terrifying in the fifties. I mean, even now it chills me to watch this mm. film. I, 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 I think I think mm. it has problems. Yeah, oh, yeah. There are certain elements to this that you look back and think, oh, actually no. But I, I was watching it last night, 
in the dark, and it was just as creepy as I remember when I first watched it, you know. Stephen, your history with the movie, mate, how many times have you seen this? I've seen it, I suspect, at least four or five times, mm. um, and more recent times I've, I've seen it than going, I can't remember, the first time I saw it must have been in the early 2000s, I think. But since then, you know, obviously I've come back to it because it's worthwhile coming back to it. And I do, you know, sometimes forget a little bit and then suddenly something reminds me about it. I think, oh, oh, must go watch that. Because, you know, you get what you're going to get out of it. You're going to get a, a, that real quality chill that is the timelessness. I mean, the, the only way this wouldn't be, you know, adaptable into modern times is it wouldn't be in a library looking up books and stuff. You'd just find them on you know, on the internet, um, and look at them on a tablet, so it's very hard to pass a, a sheaf of, of runes in that way. Otherwise, yeah, this is, you know, it could be set in the, in the Victorian area, it could be done in, in the 50s, could be done in the 70s, could be done in 20 years' time. It, it, as Adam says, it's got that integral part of the chill that is in your bones when you just unknown threat that you, you can't escape and, see, you know, that takes a, a life of its own. That just grabs you every time I think and you know certainly the, the there's ways that this uh, film could be done differently but the essential story is absolutely gripping yeah and you've got to remember actually this was modernized because it was written 1911 I think it first appeared in publication mm. so you know the filmmakers yeah. have actually done the job of bringing it up to a contemporary audience as well you know in that respect for me this is the movie that I always pinpoint that started my love of horror films because really yeah wow. because back in 1980 <laughs> right I'll take you back lads during the war back in 1980 <laughs> we've mentioned this when you first entered your 50s yeah oh, yes yeah I passed the Meldrew line back then yeah um, BBC used to run the horror double bills that we talk about quite often you know then that's where a lot of people found their footing for their love of horror. And I think it was the 1980 season, started in like the September. And this was a double bill. It was the first one. I think it was a double bill with this. And I think it might have been Lugosi's Dracula. So instantly on a Saturday night, I was watching this in my bedroom. The old man was watching Match of the Day. And instantly I've got a universal classic and then I've got this classic British movie. And then, you know, in weeks to come, they'd show all the universals and they'd show all the hammers and it was just a great education for me of, you know, classic horror movies. And that's, I, I pinpoint this as being the very first movie that, you know, set my love of classic horror movies in, in motion. And I don't go back to it as often as I'd like to. I mean, I've seen it. Well, I've just checked on Letterboxd, which we started 10 years ago when I started the Stinking Paul's podcast. I've watched it four times in the last 10 years, which is probably quite enough, actually, when you think about it, every two or three years is, is a good sort of running time to watch a movie. Absolutely adore this movie, the whole thing about it, even some of the problems that you say that we might have with it to do with the special effects and, and the monster itself, you know, which we'll talk about. We mentioned briefly the synopsis. Does either of you, Adam, Adam, do you want to elaborate a little bit on the synopsis for us, mate, for anybody that hasn't seen it? We'll... Yeah, so um, Dana Andrews plays, is it John Holden? John Wait. Holden, yeah. Uh, he, um, yeah, he arrives in Britain for this uh, convention, uh, on the, the isn't it like occult influences on 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 people and how science can overcome all this kind of thing? Yeah. Uh, and one of the speakers he was meant to see was Professor Harrington, who we see killed at the beginning. 
by this something in the trees. It's it's, it's fantastically done. So he arrives uh, as a total skeptic about um, the occult, and he is met by Julian Carswell, who's this sort of enigmatic, impish, almost like Luciferian sort of satanic, but with a twinkle in his eye figure. It's children's entertainment, for God's sake. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's so creepy. But he is basically uh, cursed by Carswell, and he is told that he has three days before he he will die. And it, the the film is basically Holden slowly coming to the realization that Carswell writes, and there is something after him, and it's getting nearer every day. It's, mm. You know, the first day it's at the end of the hall in the shadows. The second day he can feel it sort of breathing on his neck, and then it gets to this last day when he's a total believer, having sort of investigated and found that this has happened before and it's going to happen to him. So by the last day, he's desperately trying to work out how he can get rid of the curse. And he finds out that Carswell has passed him uh, like a little runic Mm. series of runes on a piece of paper. And he realizes that if he passes this on and it is accepted by another person, he can pass this curse on this that's chasing him. So the, the, the last sort of 10 minutes, 15 minutes becomes this really taut sort of race against time. He's trying to pass this runic symbol back to Carswell. And I mean, I won't spoil it, but there's a fantastic final sort of confrontation yeah. between yeah. them on a train that just, it, it's like one of those sort of your stomach drops when you realize <laughs> that a certain thing has happened. It's brilliantly done. Yeah. But yeah, that's basically it. It's um, when you're talking about contemporary versions of this story and how it was first written in 1911 and remade for 50s audience. I mean, it's basically been done more recently that, than that, too, in essence. I mean, you have, like, Ring. Just about which to is say that. Mm. same kind of thing. It's like a viral curse. Yeah. That, um, first, you disbelieve. Second, you come to understand. And third, you're, it's a race against time to pass it on before yeah. it actually arrives at you. But, I mean, I don't think this story type's going away anyway. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, it's age-old, isn't it? That's the thing, like we said. It's Origins of 1911 yeah. and, and it's still being sort of remade today. There's the wonderful scene where there is a survivor of somebody that has received the curse and managed to pass it mm. on, which... Talking Brian Wilde, isn't it? Yeah, talking about, you know, <laughs> legendary <laughs> supported actors. It's Foggy Dewhurst, you know, or, or Mr. Barraclough from Porridge. It's, it's Brian Wilde. Who for me gives the performance of the entire movie? I absolutely love that he's particular brilliant. scene. Yeah. yeah, he's fantastic. Now I want you to come forward in time. It is the night of the demon. You must. It is the night of the demon. Lord's there. I see it in the trees. The smoke and the fire. My time allowed is almost over. Oh, my, what do you mean, your time allowed? He's not in that poor with you. Do you want me to turn him over to you? Yes, please. Oh, Bart, from now on, the only voice you'll hear is that of Dr. Holden. Do you understand? What do you mean by your time allowed? To prepare for my death. Why must you die? I've been chosen. How will you die? The parchment was passed to me. I took it without knowing. Oh, what? Open your eyes.
Is this the parchment? <coughs> no. I passed it back to the brother who gave it to me. The only way. I had to return it to him. I didn't want to, but it was the only way I could save myself. To save yourself, you had to give it back to the one who gave it to you? Yes. Yes. I had to. And the demon took him. Not me. Not me. You're not trying to pass it to me again. But I won't take it. I won't. And I have to say, that whole subplot with Hobart, Mm. For me, it elevates the film because it becomes this, you know, it's like proof of this diabolical curse thing, but in front of your eyes and you see what the effects of it have done. And it's, it becomes less hokey at that point and more horrifying when it's you see chilling. what yeah. it's done to him. Yeah, it's absolutely. really, really cleverly done. Yeah, because up to this point, it's been classic tourneur, hasn't it, Adam? You know, the spooky mm. shadows and the wonderful must-be nod to cat people where, where the house cat turns into a leopard and attacks it. So good. <laughs> that's got to be that's got to be a nod to cat people, surely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if Val Luton's name was on this thing, mm. you wouldn't flinch and Luton you know he did dabble in the supernatural obviously cat people has a supernatural edge to it but everything else is very much like you're not sure if it's real or not or is it suggestion or is it you know just a, an evil person and seventh victim is all about devil worshippers but there's no satan in it you know it's all people stalking other people and i walked with the zombies very open to suggestion it's mainly mm. just shadows and is this real or is this not but curse of the demon or night of the demon as, as it's known um, is very, you know, explicit in the fact that it is, it is a supernatural tale. But even so, you could you could read it either way if you really wanted to. And I think that's something that Torner definitely brought from Luton's stable. Do you know what I like about it as well? Because Torner wasn't just sort of horror and supernatural. You know, the what was the Robert Mitchum? Um, out of the Past? Out of the Past, yeah, my God. So, it's so, the greatest noir ever made. Exactly, and there's elements of noir in this. It's almost like a noir with like an added horror. It's two genres sort of melded together. You've got Dana Andrews doing his best with Robert Mitchum. And just, you know, you've got your femme fatale in the shape of Peggy Cummings and all these goings on. And instead of it being some sort of like detective investigation, it's a supernatural investigation almost, isn't it? So they've got the perfect director to cross the genres here. That's what makes it so appealing, I think. It's mm. everything in there. You've got folk horror, you've got straight horror, you've got noir, you've got a thriller, you've got a detective story. And then you've got like a full-blown sci-fi <laughs> without effects-laden ending and beginnings, bookmark and the whole thing. It's it's absolutely fantastic film. Stephen, any highlights for you, mate? What's what makes this stand out for you, mate? Well, I mean, you Adam said with the, the climactic scene, which you've been building toward. When you when you know about it in advance because you've seen it before, you 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 are holding your breath, thinking about the the you know what bits of sleight of hand might be going on to try and and past the parchment you know whether looking to see whether he's trying to stuff it in a matchbox or you know is it one of the rolled up cigarettes that he's trying to offer and all these kind of things and it's incredibly you know all of that is red herrings and bluffs to try and distract from what what does happen but that's a a, a great scene i think you know i am quite taken with how it all settles in with the children's party 
and then the, the witchcraft, as it were, that gets brought in, that light and shade being put in at that point and, and butting up against the two, you've got, a, a you know, as you say, a guy who's this cult leader calling demons in and, and manipulating the weather to come into storms and stuff, but he's also, you know, handing out puppies to children as part of a, of a, of a show um, and dressed up as a clown. I mean, we all know that clowns are sinister anyway, but... And this just emphasises it. But that juxtaposition, um, I think, is incredibly interesting to sort of set a bit of a tone in this, that you, you are getting quite a different set of messages all at the same time. Same as what I've just said about the, the genre mixing. And it just works. Normally, you'd think that would be quite comical to, to be having a children's party immediately followed by them talking about dark witchcraft and you know calling down demons and stuff but it fits entirely and actually makes it better in my opinion and that's that's quite a poignant point for the film i think yeah it's, it's interesting isn't it because the summoning up of the wind scene it happens immediately after the kids party doesn't it? it's like you say there's this instant sort of like light and shade as you say it's like it, it just really highlights how dark Carswell actually is. He's a great villain in this, isn't he? And he doesn't He's a fantastic villain, yeah. <laughs> and he doesn't have the to mo- try too hard. Yeah, sorry, Steve. But the, you know, it's a bit the, the mother is there to taking uh, along the um the Peggy Cummings character, Joanna, takes her away from the men to go, Oh, you know, would you like some ice cream? I'll you know, here's mm. some homemade ice cream. And the next time you see the pair of them, that she's like you know, they're standing over this book of demonology talking about, well, I don't understand what the words say, but can you, you can you make anything from the pictures? <laughs> <laughs> the mother in it, I think, is, is presents a bit of a juxtaposition as well because she seems to be, you know, completely naive and, and inured to it all. It's just like as if, you know, a, a son had a, a train collection or, or something over it. It seems Ooh. to be just, just, just his, his innocent hobby almost rather than it being that this is, you know, dealing with the diabolical um, uh, there's a marvellous scene halfway through the movie with the mother at the seance yes well, the seance yeah <laughs> featuring king of the character actors Reginald Beckwith who and where's sh- he from well he's, he from? he's originally from York he's from York that's right you've brought this up before <laughs> yeah <laughs> Reginald Beckwith and John Barry I think you always mention he's going to crop up in the Hall of Fame because we've seen him in just got the Antarctic, amongst other things, haven't we, recently? And, yeah, the mother singing... Is it Cherry Ripe? She sings, isn't it? The, you know, the high-pitched, yeah. falsetto version of Cherry Ripe. And, and Reginald Beckwith. This bit I'd forgotten. Reginald Beckwith does the voices of, you know, the, the spirits that are entering his body. So it's where the famous line, it's in the trees, it's coming. He's got Morris Denham's voice being projected from it. But he starts off... Yeah. Right, this is the bit that gets me. If Reginald Beckwith was actually doing those voices... You, you know, you'd expect a certain degree of um, inequality, shall we say, of of you know accents and things like that. Because there's no way he could have done that child's voice. Okay, so that is a definite recording. The thing that baffled me is why, when Mister McGregor comes out, the voice of Mister, I think it's Mister McGregor, the Scottish person at the beginning. Why didn't they just get a Scottish actor rather than somebody trying to do a desperately bad Scottish accent? Did you not notice how bad that Scottish accent was? Perhaps, perhaps they'd um, used up the budget for a Scottish actor on Dana Andrews' Whiskey Bill. <laughs> well, ironically, you probably would have got um, Sean Connery quite cheap. Um, 57. And that, was the only, and that was the only accent he could do. Yeah. <laughs> well, Irish. <laughs> no, it, it it was Russian and Spanish. Of course, he was. Yeah. And then when the he also when he played some Sikh or Arabian 
chief uh, again Scottish. Oh, is that the one with Charlotte? Not Charlotte Rampling. Um, yeah, I think I know the one you mean. Yeah. Awesome. Anyway, it was it was being Sean Connery. Still. <laughs> this was um yeah. this was seven seven years before Mary Poppins. They could have got Dick Van Dyke. He's done a faultless one. Actually, I think this is probably about the same time as Hell Drivers, which he would have been in fifty seven. Must be about now. I don't remember Dick Van Dyke being in Hell Drivers. No. <laughs> <laughs> Some kind of movie that was. (laughs) I like the um, when you were talking about that uh, kids' party scene, Mm. um, it reminded me of The Omen as well. It's like when you get that, when you get like, you know, that sort of field of innocence with kids running around and laughing and clowns and sunshine and ice cream and things. And then all of a sudden you get something really diabolical happen, like a nurse jumping out of a window and saying, It's all for you, Damien. Or Mm. the wind whistling up and you know, is this display of power yeah. from from the the other side? When is when you get this, you know, lovely innocent scene, and then it's touched by the beyond. Mm. That's um, it's one of those one of those things that always chills you and makes you feel unsafe. Because if a kid's party isn't safe, then what yeah, is? what is absolutely yeah, great scene. It's not safe as a children's party. It's full of germs because that's what kids carry. Very true. <laughs> <laughs> it's COVID central. <laughs> Well, we've had a little chat about sort of the character actors and the stars and the co-stars, and I think it's probably time that Stephen grabbed his keys and takes us into... Now, I know Adam's a big fan of this segment, Stephen. Oh, I, I can't wait for this. Yeah. I only <laughs> wish I could see you, Stephen, because I, I want to see the, the sweat beads pouring. <laughs> you, you want to see the spreadsheet that goes with it. Here we go. It's, it's the Village Hall of Fame. go there's the footsteps walking up no cloven hooves amongst the path today um just a pair of size nines who you got for us mate who's who's knocking on the door who's inducted who's been in there 400 times come on mate let's have a little listen <laughs> well I'll, I'll do my best to to impress adam as far as knocking on the door we do have nine people making their second appearances first alphabetically out of those is the aforementioned reginald beckwith because as you said he was in scotland of the antarctic oh so um, he's only been t- two i thought he might have so, actually been inducted well this week. no um i think he's in genevieve so when we do that he'll be uh, uh, yeah he'll be making his, his debut there so that's uh something to anticipate uh peggy cummins uh, was in hell drivers so that's fortunate oh, yeah. so uh, she's uh um, looking at her filmography, I'm not sure um, how much chance there is of getting her in uh, again because uh, her career, you know, didn't go on um, uh, terribly long. Adam, Gun Crazy was that before or after? Because that was Hollywood, wasn't it? She went over to Hollywood, didn't she? Peggy mm. Cummings for a little while, had a brief yeah. American career, didn't she? She was in Gun Crazy with John Dahl, who was yeah. the killer in Rope. So yeah, that's that was, the only that thing I can think. She was also in, so yeah, you're probably right there, Steve. We'll never see her again. <laughs> Possibly not. No, <laughs> Peter Elliott was in Man of Roman, uh, who uh, you know, one of the, uh, the background characters. Cy Enfield, though, 
obviously not acting in this, but obviously in, involved in getting this onto the screen for us, uh, was Hell Drivers, the aforementioned that we said. Talking so, of um, a, House of American yeah. Activities, um, yeah. Adam, another refugee. Yep. 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 You know, also one of the nine making their second appearances is Rosamund Greenwood, which mm-hmm. um, who uh, was in a, a little-known film that didn't have a lot of people in it called Night to Remember. There's their first one. <laughs> it's there. Peggy uh, Cummings wasn't in that. It's, it's the first of many. Uh, the, there's some frequent flyers with regards to certain films that quite a lot of people in this cast were also in, you know, such as Robert Howell was in Violent Playground, uh, Michael Peake, uh, Man Who Never Was, uh, Athene Sailor was in Yields of the Night, and Peggy Scott Sanders was Gideon's Day. So they're the ones that are w- uh, waiting to go in, and some of those might never make it, but mm. some of the others, like you said, Reginald Becker, if it will be um, just a matter of, of weeks or months that they suddenly uh, get their own seat inside yeah. the village hall. There are eight people who are actually going into the village hall eight. today. <laughs> eight. Eight? <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, Charles Bennett, obviously the writer, Fetching Ice Steps and Young Youngen and Innocent. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Cairns was in Cash and Demand and Night to Remember. Walter Horsborough, Man for All Seasons and Seven Days to Noon. Anthony John, Hell Drivers and Battle Playground. Liam Redmond, who also uh, we recognise him, that's a proper Irish accent. Cruel Sea and Yield to the Night. Anthony Redmond, Long Arm and Valent Playground. Uh, Leonard Sharp, Seven Days to Noon and Violent Playground, and Bert Sims, which is a cracking name. Bert Sims, Heavens Above and Seven Days to Noon. So, Ooh, so um, a lot of Seven Days to Noon in there. It's there quite... is, and Violent Playground and mm. Yield to the Night um, is you know the frequent appearances, it seems, yeah. through all, all of this. So There are three people making their fourth appearances. Mm-hmm. Daniel Brown, uh, Gideon's Day, Lavender Hill, Morgan Quaid's Mass 2, Lawrence Hepworth, Heavens Above, Man of the Moment, and Night to Remember, and uh, John Salu, Dunkirk, It Always Rains on a Sunday, and Lavender Hill Mob. Okay. That's all right. As far as fifth appearances, we do have six of those. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, You're Robert doing Brooks. God's work, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Robert Brooks Turner. Uh, Dan Buster's Revenge of Frankenstein, Seven Days to Noon, Went the Day Well. Uh, Richard Duke, Man of the Moment, Night to Remember, Seven Days to Noon, Troubling Star. John Harvey, Dunkirk, Heavens Above, Private Progress and Exit of the Unknown. Percy Herbert, Bunny Lake is Missing, Guns of Navarone, One Good Turn, Quatermass 2. Leonard Llewellyn, Man for All Seasons, Man of the Moment, Night to Remember and One Good Turn and... Paul Phillips, which was Inspector Calls, Man of the Moment, Night to Remember, and Quatermass. Go on, I know there's one more, at least. I know. <laughs> well, there's, there's four people making their six appearances. <laughs> they got to bear in mind, Adam, we've only reviewed something like 130 movies. And what yeah, are the chances cool. of... And they're not even major stars, these names. This is the thing that amazes us. Hmm. None of these are your John Mills, or you know, we say this every week, don't we, Stephen? Stephen reads out the names, and I go, Who? You know, we don't recognize them at all. Go on, mate, keep them coming. Yeah, there's a, coming up, there's a couple of people coming up that we'll recognize the names of, but other people, yeah, you know, your average person wouldn't. But the, the great named uh, Wallace Bosco, um. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is this is a bit where where uh, Scott starts thinking I'm making up names. Yes, yeah, anagrams. Wallace Bosco sounds like the name for cash and carry. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Well, it sounds like the sheriff out of um, Dukes of Hazzard. Um, yeah. yeah. So uh, 
39 steps, brief encounter, carry on regardless, natural member and the rebel. Okay. Um, we do recognise the name of Lloyd Lamble. We recognise his name and his face, thankfully. Dan Buster's Dunkirk, Man of the Moment, Private's Progress and Christmas 2. Richard Leach, Cool C, Dan Buster's Gideon's Day, The Long Arm and Night Remember. And Dan Lester, Dr. No, Dunkirk, Gideon's Day, One Good Turn and Robbery. So... There's one more, um, isn't there? I know there's one more. So, well, well, there's... <laughs> There's one one person making their ninth appearance, which is Charles Lloyd. <laughs> That's the one. That's the one I was Whoa! thinking. Wow! <laughs> um, Trigger's dead. Here we go. Go on. Be, bedazzled Dracula, if last holiday, man who haunted himself, question master to Revenge of Frankenstein, and yield to the night. So, uh, well done Very to uh, Charles Lloyd Pack for having the second most, because we do have somebody with ten. <laughs> hang on, hang on. Let me just look at this list and try and work out who it is. Is it? It's not Brian Wild. Certainly not Brian Wild. Um, not Brian Wild, unfortunately, no. Have you mentioned, mentioned Morris Denham? Uh, oh. We couldn't have been in 10. Morris Denham, surely. Go on, Stephen. Put us out of our misery. Um, Heimer Beckley. Who? <laughs> Heimer Beckley. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah not even on the IMDb <laughs> list. You are making these up. Come on. Who is. Hammer Beckley is on the list. Oh, um, hang on. <laughs> further down the list, you can oh, see Hammer Beckley. Um, <laughs> Hammer Beckley's there. Um, um, what role did Mr. Beckley or Mrs. Beckley? I couldn't even know Mr. Beckley. Okay. So, Hammer Beckley, yes. So, uh, Georgie Girl, Gregory's Girl, Man Who Haunted Himself, Night to Remember, The Plank, Passport to Pendico, The Rebel, and Room at the Top. Scientific wow. conference audience uncredited listed. As. There you see. Now, have you got any more? Because I've just spotted somebody. No, that's my my list as far as that, and I'm okay. open to correction. Uncredited first reporter. Anybody recognise this name? Ballard Barkley. Yeah, I've got the major name, Major yes. Gowan from Forty yes. Towers. Mm. Isn't it? Yes. Um, have you done stage fright by Hitchcock? No, not that? yet. No. Oh, okay, right. So yeah, he's uh... he'll appear in that. I'll we'll be back for that one. Well, we got this? <laughs> yeah. In, in five years. When you actually look at the IMDb list, it's quite a cast, but most of them are uncredited, and people like Percy Herbert didn't appear in the American version. That scene with the... He plays the farmer, so he didn't appear. The demon is credited by a chap called Daniel Brown, so I don't know if he was like a puppeteer was, or something. Yeah, or, Gideon's the yeah, Christmas. So, so he's um, appeared. He, Dan, Daniel Brown is credited as the... Well, uncredited as the demon, it says here. Yeah, he's he's had three appearances because he was in Gideon's Day, Lavender Hill Mob. Sorry, four appearances. Lavender Hill Mob, Gideon's Day and, and Christmas too. His IMDb avatar yeah. picture is the demon, so we don't even know what he looks like. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. So, well, you consider that the the cast list on IMDb mm. is is like forty five people. The number of people with second, third, fourth, fifth, up to ten appearances that I've just gone through mm-hmm. that's more than half the cast. And when you consider that you know uh, the, one of the cast members was American, so it's unlikely to uh, to appear. Yeah. Um. You know, we've we've got some some uh, you know real. Real stalwarts there of the British cinema that you know were 
walking out of these jobs and walking into a, another one next day on the same studio, just walking into a, yeah. a, a film doing some gritty drama about racing trucks or um, a police procedural or, or whatever the the um, kitchen sink precursors. They were jobbing actors, you know, not not stars, just jobbing actors, which, um, as I say, we like to celebrate. Thankfully. Yeah, none, none of those appeared. None of the Victor Harringtons or, you know, the guy Stan Evans that are up there on 12, 13 appearances were in this movie. And not as many from Night to Remember this time round as well, which was surprising. There was only a couple. Yeah, but there has to be some. It's kind of the, the real Britannia law that, the, you know, oh, yeah. there's going to be any any people in this. We, uh, we usually have to make sure there is somebody from uh, Night to Remember, considering that had a, a cast list of Forms or something stupid. <laughs> <laughs> More people were in that film than actually died in the Titanic. So. Exactly. <laughs> we, we reckon there were 1,500 extras in that movie, the same number of passengers that were on the boat. There has to be, because they just keep cropping up all the time. Stephen, thank you for that. I mean, Adam is suitably impressed because it's... Herculean. Herculean. (laughs) We didn't realise that it would spawn this monster, basically. And and Stephen is the only one that's got a handle on this, Adam. I mean, I I don't know how he does it. I think he makes most of it up, to be honest. Yeah, but it's easy (laughs) way. Yeah, he's, a, he's there at night amending the IMDb listings. I'll put him in this film. Uncredited. Marianne Stone only ever appeared in two movies, didn't she? Bless her. It's all the anagrams of names that I have to make up. You know that. Yeah, you know, it's getting to the stage where sooner or later I'm, I'm going to come up with, you know, Jack Doorknob just because I can't have, <laughs> have, have uh, any kind of ideas. He was in Confessions of a Plumber, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, <Jack> thank you. <laughs> um, we're going to start winding this down very soon, but we can't really sort of finish our conversation without talking about the monster itself. I mean, it was a source of controversy at the time. Some people still don't like the whole idea of seeing the monster. I just wanted to see what you guys actually thought of it, because personally, I think having seen it so many times it actually makes the movie for me i very much used to used to be an opinion that it, it was such a bad special effect mm. that um, it kind of let the films down the film down a bit mm. and i have found that when i've shown this film for the first time to people they are instantly taken out of all of that dread building and all of that you know yeah. really clever tension stuff they get you know the final moments I just, I, oh God's sake, you know. And um, I do feel that there should have been a cut. I think, mm. where, well, there is now, you know, where where there's less monster, so that <laughs> for new new initiation, uh, you know, to, to new people to watch this film, perhaps they retain that sort of sense of ambiguity. Was it real? Was it not? Mm. Kind of thing. And it goes. It doesn't just go explicit at the end. It goes super explicit. Like, not only is there a demon. It's a great big rubber dog with lightning, and you know, like, I mean, it's not a great special effect. But personally, mm. um, I've come round to the idea. I kind exactly of find it a bit so. charming. Mm. I like the hokiness of it, and who's to say demons don't look like that? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Stephen, your thoughts on on the marvelous special effect that is well, the demon? I, I think that it's as a genuine of bringing it in at the end and actually showing 
it is isn't a problem. I think earlier on it would have benefited, you know, overall if they'd kept the mystery of between the skepticism and um, the belief in in magic to be able to carry it on rather than so early it actually leaping into the fact that no, this demon thing is an actual reality and. That's what they're dealing with because if you kept it a bit more ambiguity, a bit more, is this about, you know, auto suggestion and et cetera? And is it that one of uh, the followers of, of Carswell is out there actually going and murdering people and et cetera? And there could have been a bit more of that tension built. But in the context of what it is, the, the film, and especially with the speed at which the film goes on, even, even without it being the cut version, there's no let up in action in this. This is, is a film that rattles on through and they cram a lot in. Um, you don't have any duff moments where you just sat waiting. So I don't think that the, I don't think there was necessarily a need to, to show the monster as early as they did. I think it might have been better to take a, a, a middle ground and do a bit more of a Jaws thing where you, you, you wait until a certain point through the film before you finally see the actual creature. That's to blame. I, I think it might it might have benefited from that, but then I haven't seen other adaptations and seen how they've done it to see whether that means that it's um, it's been done with less show and tell, and whether that enhances it or not. To be perfectly honest, so um, maybe that's what I'll have to do: go have a look at a, a different interpretation of this and see whether it works better or worse. For me, I mean, I love it anyway, but. Every time I watch this movie, there's that particular bit, guys, where you see the full length of, of the creature and his legs are going as if it's riding a bicycle. And then when yeah. you've got the added special effect of that music that sounds like it's a very rusty bicycle that he's riding because there's that real sort of squeaky, screeching thing going on in the background. And it, it looks like he's riding a bike. And it's, a, it's incredible because when you consider that the, the set designs on this are absolutely fantastic, the room in the seance, you know, the house where Carswell lives are all magnificent looking sort of sets. It's Ken Adam who did the Bond movies and oh, right. Kubrick. Movies, yeah. yeah. And it's one of his early movies. And you can actually see it when you look at some of the interior sets. And I'm not sure if he was responsible for the creature or not, because he's more set design, isn't he, Ken Adams? So he's, he'll probably did well. He probably would have denied it all his life if he was actually responsible for that <laughs> thing. So, yeah, Oscar-winning Ken Adam. <laughs> wow. Well, they're trying to originally get uh, what's his name, Harry Harryhausen, oh, to do the. Harry the that was that was yeah. what they were originally wanting um, him to do the special effects for the monster. But he was tied up with, I think it was one of the adventures of Sinbad and, or something like that, so he couldn't do it. So they and then found it out elsewhere. So maybe that would have made a difference as well if there'd been that level um, of expertise and, and artistry into it, might have changed some views on it. But yeah, I mean, it didn't, for me, it didn't do what Adam's described there as uh, taking me out of the film. Even the first time I watched it, it didn't, because I think that the overall feeling of, of the film, you buy into the fact that the special effects are not going to be, you know, CGI from a Marvel film. <laughs> you know, that's not what, you know, don't watch this for the, you know, films of this era for uh, the special effects. And, you, you know, even when you look back to films that were done in the, you know, in the 90s, you, the special effects can look even creakier than what this does, <laughs> to be honest. You know, early CGI effects can be worse than, than this kind of thing. So yeah. um, I don't think it's a, a spoiler for the film. I don't think it in any way ruins it. it might, a, a tweak might have made a difference one way or another, but it, it's, I don't see any detraction from the, the overall greatness of this film and, and the impact it has 
um, of spooking you. So, I think that um, you, when you have a director like Tornet, who who obviously worked with what you can't see, and and with Luton especially, everything was about what you don't see, and the whole you know all the cat people scares come from stuff you can't see. It's like power of suggestion, the way she's being followed down the street, and all you hear is the sound of something behind her, and the swimming pool where all you can see is something in the shadows. The bit at the end where there's something lurking beneath the desks and coming towards them. And then you have him coming over here and making this beautiful horror film, you know, where you get shots of down a hallway and there's something in the shadows and um, you know, there's something in the wind that blows yeah. around the kids' party. It's all, you know, oh, Christ, what is that? I don't know what it is, therefore it's scarier because I can't identify it. Um, and I think, you know, if, if they kept the ending a bit more, was it real or was it not? Was it a train that hit him or, you know? then uh, I think it would have been a very different film. I like the fact that there's a monster, but you can tell that Tourneur would not have wanted that at all. That was totally forced Mm. on him. And Charles Bennett apparently was so angry with Hal Chester, who took co-writing credit, that he said, uh, if he walks up my driveway right now, I'd shoot him I'd kill him. Yeah, yeah, he said that, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. But yeah, it, it it doesn't ruin the film for me. It makes it slightly, it gives it a slightly hokier edge because every time someone says curse of the demon, like the demon to me, all I think of is that demon. It's the monster. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, but the, the image has been, you know, then become a, a cult in itself. Yeah. I mean, it's been, you know, reproduced on t shirts and album covers and all sorts of things. You know, I think there's uh, any number of films where it's, it's on, you know, the poster is on somebody's bedroom wall sort of thing or, or they're walking past a, a poster outside a cinema sort of thing and it's setting the scene for, that's, a, a, you know, pointed towards where there's a homage for the film that it's taking some kind of influence from. Um, so it is very iconic in that sense for for all what could be said about it as criticism. I think it certainly leaves its mark and has become certainly a cult image um, which is worth recognizing i think it's one of those movies that has sort of found its audience in the last 15 20 years and there's a new appreciation for it because pretty much up to that sort of period i only ever remember it being regarded as a b-movie guys you know it was it was never sort of spoke about in the same breath of some of those other classic hollywood certainly in any uh, british horrors you know it was never mentioned in the same breath as those classic movies and now it does it appears in top 10 lists and and everything now you know and i think there's a newfound sort of fondness and appreciation for it It, yeah it out out scares all the hammer films for Mm. me it it, it, you know it, it is more restrained it's less it's less sort of i think the hammer horrors are are great and they're, they're great fun to watch and some of them are quite chilling but they don't ever they don't ever leave, they don't ever sit with you afterwards you know terrify you yeah. during your dreams whereas neither demon has that it has that folk horror edge to it that it makes you worried in case you know what if runic passing runes on a, a reel and is there something in the trees as i'm walking the dog on my own all that kind of thing <laughs> so yeah it, it's a genius film in that yeah kind of way. i mean obviously this is a bit more chilling for you adam because i keep sending you pieces of paper with runes on through the post <laughs> and honestly, but, um, no i think you, what you said right at the beginning of this which was that this sits as a film between the classic universal horror and then the hammer and Amicus and etc. Horrors that then almost sort of ran with some of the diluted elements of this. It it can be on a double bill with either of those, the Hammer horrors or the the, the classic Universal. 
and not feel out of place. And this is why it's such a pivotal film, I think, that is looked back towards by other people who are not necessarily always going on and doing horrors themselves, but they're you know, they're still using this as some kind of influence. Obviously, the source material is a big part of that. I think it, the importance of this film has been recognised more and not just for it being at that crossroads, but also for the fact that it does pack more into it. You, you're right, it's got the, the different elements in it rather than it just being a horror mystery and, and thriller and, and the sort of police investigation type, type side of things. And that's why it works so well, regardless of whether you like the monster or, or not. It's um, it, it just does grip you and you do think about what could be more than you do think about the idea of, of Dracula being in a castle in um, with some bats on strings, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I love the film, though. I think it's brilliant. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a masterpiece. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, I bought the magnificent, there's this new Blu-ray version came out last year, and it's got all four versions. It's got the, the US and the British short version, the long version, ton of documentaries on there everything it's amazing you know it's it's a real real investment you know it's it's and it's the picture quality is superb on this blu-ray transfer it's incredible excellent excellent okay that's night of the demon from 1957 now in order to make up somewhat for taking five and a half years to get adam on the show i'm going to invite him back (laughs) um early in the new year i've come up with a movie if that's okay sir um, yeah, that I'm God. pretty sure you're familiar with. So, let's take a short break. We'll be back after this. Very well, Maggie. Cherry ripe, cherry ripe, ripe I cry. Fruits and ones, we was all sing the spirits like it. Cherry ripe, cherry ripe, ripe I cry. That's really very quick. He's so helpful, you'll see. Mrs. Carswell. Something's here. Can't you feel it? As we say, Adam, in the break, has very kindly agreed to come back. A little bit of coercion uh, and bullying. Yeah, and pieces of parchment with runes on. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to put my fire guard on. (laughs) And I've just pre-warned Adam as to what we're going to be reviewing, and it's probably, as Adam says, the most un-British British movie (laughs) we could have picked. Um... Whenever I think of this movie, I think of Adam. 
It's, yes. it's, it's one of the earliest things you did on Out of Boy Clarence, isn't it, mate? I think it was one of the very yeah, first like reviews. Second episode, yeah. 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 I'll let you introduce it in your own inimitable way and just describe <laughs> what we're going to be reviewing next time you're here, mate. It's the greatest film of all time. Um, <laughs> slowly raising it from obscurity into legendary status. Um, yeah, it's... <laughs> <laughs> Just a taste of what to expect. Go on. <laughs> I mean, it has British people in it. <laughs> yeah. um, it's 1945's The Brighton Strangler. Um, it's absolute work of genius. It's about a, an actor who's acting in a play called The Brighton Strangler. Um, and then he gets, <laughs> he gets knocked on the head during a bombing raid and wakes up and thinks he is The Brighton Strangler. So he goes off to Brighton, just strangles a load of people. <laughs> and yeah. then famously you know walks off a roof <laughs> dies <laughs> I'm, I'm just looking forward to the, I'm just looking forward to him buying a train ticket to be honest <laughs> yes we've got all of this to come for those of you that have not seen it I'm going to urge all of you to watch this um, Adam will be back we think it'll be early in the new year at the, at the rate we're recording at the moment which, so. which year uh, yeah <laughs> No, we'll get him back bright and early. Bright and early, hey. Um, in, in the <laughs> I'm, I'm already laughing. Adam's already laughing at the thought of not only watching the movie, but talking about it. I mean, you you discuss this with anybody at the drop of a hat, this movie, Adam, wouldn't you? This is just... Oh, God, you know, I talk about the fact that I've seen Night of the Demon. I watch Night of the Demon once every six weeks. I watch The Brighton Strangler. Once a week, hundred <laughs> percent. I have to show you guys something. Come with me. You're mm-hmm. currently walking through my house. It's, it's, it's being screened on the TV as we speak. The kids are all watching it, aren't they? <laughs> down, down. What do you see? There it is. <laughs> <laughs> on the wall. There is a bright and strangler poster. There we Brighton go. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yes, that's why I selected it. So. <laughs> it's it's oh, wow. Nice as, as Adam said, it's full of, you know, it's as, uh, the coastline of California masquerading as the South Coast. And, you, you know, we're used to that from things like episodes of episodes of Columbo, where he's, he's, he's a, yeah. in, in London and it's very much that, you know, the, they forget to drive on the correct side of the road and, and things like this. And um, It has the worst script ever. It's a scene where he's lying in bed having a bad dream and he's, he's literally doing that with his head side to side and mm. saying, strangle, strangle. <laughs> <laughs> it has a Christmas sing-song scene that you won't believe. When you sing. Oh, it's just brilliant. It's the worst film ever made. Fantastic! I love it. The one good thing is, it's probably not going to cause me too much work with the uh, Hall of Fame. No, <laughs> I don't think there'll be oh, anybody. There's a few faces in there. Um, yeah, you've got. Uh, well, we'll get to it. We'll get to there's it. Mild Mander and, yeah. We've got somebody called Joy Harrington. Another Harrington. <laughs> Excellent. Just add her to the list. <laughs> oh, Adam, it has been and famously. A... Oh, we sorry. Go on. Yeah, no, go. On. Yeah. I was going to say, it's written written by Hugh Gray, who's a, who was a British Labour Party politician. <laughs> so, uh, sorry, go on. <laughs> I was just going to say, Adam, it's been an absolute joy and a pleasure 
to see you again, oh. my friend, and talking about this marvellous movie. I, I hope you enjoyed yourself as well. I did. It's been so, such a long time. Mm. I've been wanting to come on this show and finally done it. So, Jerry, thank you very much for having me. It's been an honour. And Steve, Stephen, for you to do the uh, Village Hall of Fame before my eyes was something I always treasure. <laughs> Bucket list territory, that, isn't it? Bucket list. Yeah, it was, yeah. One of the select few to actually see it in motion, yes. Yeah. I was there. <laughs> I was that soldier. On that day, yeah. <laughs> Adam, if you could just let a listener know where to find you, not literally, but... <laughs> um, on Twitter, I'm on at Movie Histories or at Audio Joe. Uh, we can go to attaboyclarence.com. Uh, or linktree.com slash secret history. Everything's there. Marvellous stuff. Thank you. And that's it nice for another to, nice week. To give him a, nice to give him a bit of a leg up, isn't it? Because, you know, make sure this struggling podcaster um, that's trying to, make a go, <laughs> trying to make a go of it, getting a little bit of help from, from us. Yes, um, yes. We'll throw him a few, crumb, a few crumbs from our table now and again. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Can borrow our listener. Yeah. <laughs> that, is, that is your well. Who would it be? I don't know. We still don't know who our listener actually is because your girlfriend certainly doesn't. It's listen. Adam. It's Adam. It's me. <laughs> me. Exactly. We don't need to release this. Everybody who's going to listen to it is now on it. <laughs> we found our listener. He's there, sitting on the other end of a Skype. <laughs> Stephen, Adam, thank you so much, guys. I will see you all very soon. Take care. Cheers. Thanks, guys. That does it. Absolute shah. A positive shah. Bon voyage. Good luck. Thank you. Hand up, sir. I'm sick of beans. <laughs>